Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. Inspiring people and places, we are back with another owner interview. We try to talk to industry professionals across the board, private sector, public sector, architect, engineering, construction, development, healthcare, infrastructure, energy, defense. Today, we are talking with my new friend, Todd Bowfinger from the VA. Todd, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Todd and I were talking before the show. We have we have some topics to dig into, I think, based on some pre-reading, which everybody knows I don't do a lot of because we want to keep the conversation conversational. But Todd, first part of the show is always about getting to know you, your career path. So tell us exactly who you are today, what your role is, where you're at inside of the VA, what what's, you know, roles and responsibilities under you, and then we'll We'll take a little bit of a, a step back in time to understand your career journey and, and what led you to where you're at today. Certainly. BJ mentioned, I'm Todd Bowfinger. I work with the Department of Veterans Affairs, specifically the Office of uh, Construction and Facilities Management. We break our healthcare construction down into three regions. So my current position is the, the title is Director of Facilities Operations for our West region. So what that means and what our, what our specific office does, if there is a renovation, new construction, what have you, over a threshold of about $20 million, our, our office within the VA will come in, we will work with the medical center, we will function as an owner's rep and execute the construction. If it's over $100 million, we often work with the Corps of Engineers. So there's two types of really project collaborations, some self-executed, some with the Army Corps of Engineers as a design and construction agent. And what my role does or what my role entails is essentially being the, the manager of the construction stage of our portfolio. The West region is down through New Mexico, Arizona, up and down the Pacific coast. We don't have any current projects but that could range into you know, Alaska and the Pacific Islands. But I effectively manage the boots on the ground staff. We have a, you know, depending on the size of the construction project, we'll have a supervisory resident engineer and then their staff, the resident engineers on the field site. So I work with them, providing the guidance and making sure that we either through self-execution or in collaboration with the Corps of Engineer, uh, clear the roadblocks and you know do our best to maintain project schedule and project budget. And what, what uh, size portfolio do you have under construction right now? So between for the active construction projects, we're, I would say, up into the four to five hundred million dollar range. A uh, few of those are self-executed. The majority of our portfolio across the board is managed with the core, as especially in the West Coast, a lot of the larger projects are going to be higher level, higher than the hundred million dollars. Right. Total, total portfolios into the nine to ten billion dollar range for projects that are going pre-designed and design and current construction. That's great. All right. I have a lot of questions about, about your job and, and the day-to-day, but, but take us back. You're a pretty young guy, 
sounds like you rose to the ranks pretty uh, quickly. So, but take us back to where where your career started and how you ended up in the AEC industry. Certainly. I'll, I'll start with a, a comment that today is kind of a dual, dual milestone. It's my 42nd birthday today, and this is actually the day I first started, hmm. the start of my 20th year with VA. So Awesome. Happy birthday. Yeah. And, ha- <laughs> and happy 20 years. Yes. Uh, so I grew up Southwest Pennsylvania. I went to, went to college up at Gannon University. It's in Erie, Pennsylvania, focused on mechanical engineering. Really didn't know uh, exactly what industry type I wanted to go into. Construction was, was certainly of interest. Hadn't really thought much of federal government or VA specifically. Was at a job fair, got to speaking with a couple of different folks, and really the VA jumped out. And it was surprisingly, granted this is back 2004 era, it was it was a pretty pretty seamless process. You know, I talked to some of the hiring managers. Um, it was, hey, we're looking for some some lower grades, some new folks to come in. So I accepted a position after graduation, and went from Pennsylvania. First job out was in the Sacramento area. Wow. Um, yeah. So did did you know you would ha- end up having to travel that quickly? Uh, they were pretty open about it, and. You know, our, our job or, our, or the role of the resident engineer, the, the boots on the ground, the field teams, it comes with a, um, you know, a, 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 an agreement that you sign, like the relocation agreement in which, you know, you can be moved at the behest of the government for, you know, to, to meet the mission, essentially. Needs of the VA. Needs yeah, of the exactly. Army is what they say in the Army. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah they were that very actually, it, it starts to answer one of my questions, which is you know, managing a workforce that's over such a big territory, but the projects pop up, you know, all over that territory. So you don't have, you probably don't have a permanent area engineer, you know, at, at some localized level. Exactly. The, the, the closest we have to that area engineer is at the, the regional headquarters. Um, and all of our projects, like you said, they're, they're dispersed. The, the, the duration is tied to, you know, the complexity and the overall construction schedule for the project. And it's, it's known to be a finite position. You know, when I was starting, they were, they were pretty clear. It was, Hey, we have two locations in California. We're looking to fill one of those. So it wasn't like, Hey, you work for the VA. And then, Oh, by the way, yeah, you're moving several thousand miles away from home. But it was exciting. I had never been to California. It was a, a promising offer. I think there was a, you know, th- there's always that, or at least I've found in talking with some of my counterparts, counterparts, both within private and uh, public, it's, you know, th- there is a decision to make whether you're going to go into working for the government. It's, it's very, I think a different career path, different sets of awards and challenges, but it, it was appealing to me. I was excited at the aspect of the prospect of going out to California. When I got out there, it was, it was, set up essentially like a two-year internship called the technical career field. And I was kind of going through that, learning how uh, the construction really program works and how the delivery works within the VA, you know, the larger umbrella of how the VA does business. So I, I was a part of a team. I was the mechanical staff, mechanical engineering focused staff, all HVAC plumbing types of things. And that was about a four-year renovation project. I had a uh, a phenomenal first supervisor. He, I attribute a lot of where I am today to 
kind of foundation, the baseline he set. Uh, he was a very knowledgeable gentleman, uh, very calm demeanor, worked great with, you know, with the staff, with the medical center, you know, the ultimate owners and the end users, and, and was a really good example of how to engage, you know, within an owner and a contractor. And he set that kind of set that expectation up front that, you know, before, before there was, I would say, a regular in- industry practice of facilitated partnering sessions, he truly tra- taught the contract relationships as a partnership. Always very upfront. We're not looking to get anything out of the contract beyond what's in there. We want the contractor to leave with a, you know, a, a reasonable profit. And, you know, we're doing this for the veterans. So it's hard to, it's hard to, for me anyway, to lose focus on the bigger mission, especially working with the VA. I mean, coming from a family of, you know, military and veterans, it, it it's pretty paramount and it stays there. It, it's helpful in creating that sense of, you know, we need to figure out a way to work together with folks. And I think that's something I've definitely carried through from the onset of my career into today. Um, that project wrapped up. It was about a three to four year project. I went to manage my own own project, moved over to Boise, Idaho, lived there for about two years. That was a, a really good ex- construction experience. Had a lot of staying in communication with the previous boss and establishing that, you know, that support network and just that reliance on folks with whom you can call up to trust as the subject matter experts really, really helped out and being able to be, you know, staying proactive. You know, we see problems coming down, getting in front of them. So VA has a pretty good, or at least VAC, uh, my group has a pretty good structure for being able to reach out. It is a relatively, you know, I would say smaller organization than yeah. say the, the Army Corps of Engineers. So it was very, it felt very informal, very familial in a sense. You can call up on a first name basis, you know, really whoever you needed to. And folks are often ready to to help out or connect some dots and point you into the right direction. That's great. Yeah. So it was, it was a little bit intimidating at first going into the first project, kind of a solo construction manager, finished that up. It was a great experience. Uh, from there, had went over to kind of working in that same role, a non-supervisory, because I didn't have any staff. It was just myself functioning as the senior resident engineer. I was up doing some community-based outpatient clinics. Okay. Over about three years in up in Bangor and Lewis and Auburn, Maine. So all these places were, you know, parts see, of the country. See America. Pretty, see America, they yeah. said. It was pretty S- great. Sacramento to Boise to Bangor. Yeah was up there for three years. That was a different delivery or different type of construction program. And as opposed to VA owning the land and owning the building, this was a long-term lease. That's one of the two major construction type programs that VA has. We you know, own facility versus lease facility. So it was good to get that exposure on how it was done in a different capacity. So, so let me jump in there. From that perspective, I, I know, you know, scratch the surface level information or, or understanding of the, I'll call it the business delivery mechanism of the CBOC, more of a developer role than a contractor or a constructor role. But I'm curious what role CFM plays when you have a developer coming in to deliver that, that CBOC. Does CFM still have a resident engineer 
contractor admin role responsibility? We do. And I haven't worked really in, in that, you know, real property side of the house for, you know, I'd say 10 to 15 years, but you know, it, it was very much still engaged every day, you know, with the contractor helping to clarify, you know, just uh, deconflicting where, you know, layouts and utilities may uh, not work as well. And a lot of it ties back to, you know, you're, you're following not only the local code and criteria, but also the VA's requirements. Right. The functional requirements. And, and you're so still, that. you're still representing the end user essentially. Exactly that. Exactly that. So, you know, it, it is different in the sense that, you know, on a, you know, on the, on the owned facility, we will be the ones to really conduct and establish the acceptability of the finished state. Whereas on these least, least type projects, we will engage more so with the local city inspectors. They would have the certificate of occupancy. So it's a little bit different as far as who has the authority to make the final established decision of, yes, this is an acceptable constructed you know, hmm. asset. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So from Bangor, Maine, where did we go? Bangor led to where I currently am in Denver. I moved here in, back in 12 and it was a very large full campus replacement. So at about 900,000 square feet of parking, about one, one million, $1.2 million of or square footage of healthcare and utility space. That was probably one of the, what I, what I would say, one of the most educational experiences in my career. It was a, a contract where we worked with, you know, a joint venture. We had some, some, some claims with the, the CBCA, which is Civilian Board of Contract Appeals, uh, wherein it was established, hey, there was a breach contract scenario. So that pretty much shut everything down around 40% of construction. And it mm. was chaos. Um, it, it was a very challenging, very high stress environment. Uh, that was really one of the first projects wherein we worked with the Corps of Engineers. One of the requirements to complete the project was, all right, we're going we're gonna to have an interim cost reimbursable contract, which was an entirely new model that isn't really common in the VA. So it was interesting to have a crash course and, okay, we're having a new, just a new contract vehicle. We need to make sure everybody knows exactly what the, the roles and responsibilities are. We did the the interim cost reimbursable for about a year. And in the meantime, the Corps of Engineers coming in as the the construction agent, you know, in partnership with the VA, established their own contract with the same joint venture general contractor. And VA and USACE were collaborated together as the end user on that side, took it through, you know, 100%. Completion. It was a staggered acceptance as far as you know. The whole campus wasn't just turned over. We had a, a functioning med center campus here in Denver. So working with the users, it was a very challenge, challenging scenario, and they needed to keep that one active while they were still providing healthcare services to the veterans and getting ready at the same time to you know bring on board and all the logistics. The yeah. So it was. It, it was. It was a a, a very. You like said. Very interesting, very educational time. Um, a lot of a lot of stress involved, but the one thing that really stuck out to me is, you know, towards the I would say the midpoint of construction, there was a new uh, project executive we had on our on our side, and he he was very adamant about, you know, keep your eyes focused on the finish line. Um, 
starve the negative and feed the positive. It was kind of the, the, the big three, the mantra that we always repeat. Um, and even despite all of the contractual issues and, and, and challenges with a, you know, a, a, a breach of contract scenario, the, the willingness for, and this includes the general contractor or support services, there wasn't, you know, while there was frustration at times, there was still this overall sense of, hey, we're in this together. We're going to finish it out. When the Corps of Engineers, you know, became integrated into that project team, that was a whole culture dynamic shift that VA wasn't really used to. Um, I was impressed with the ability to have the flexibility within the team to adapt and still to say, okay, it's still the same goal. It's still the same objective. It's just a very much you're, you're learning every day you know, on your feet. And it, there, there was surprisingly few instances where there was you know, significant conflict. So I was, I was very surprised and very, it was very lightening. And it goes back to that. Okay, there's three things. Let's right. let's let's keep keep the end in mind. Let's starve the negative. Let's feed the positive. And seeing that first person, that that can have realistic aspect or realistic changes in making sure you don't get caught up in these these things that are are just not contributing to finishing a project. So it really, it really did help to maintain a sense of partnership throughout that really challenging situation. Um, who, who was that project executive, if if you're comfortable sharing their name? Yeah, actually, a gentleman by the name of uh, Kevin Lindsay. Kevin, he Lindsay. had a, a lot of construction experience coming into this. Really, really had a strong, strong, solid, capable hand on the project, and, and had, got us through those kind of interim challenges and on a good pathway to finishing the project so well it's um, in- interesting i mean it, the star of the negative stands out to me because when everything's going wrong it feels like everybody feels like everything's going wrong <laughs> and and then when everything feels like everything's going wrong people start wanting to blame others instead of focusing on solutions and starving yeah. the negative sounds like the right mantra for for kicking that out of the culture and, it, and it, it's, it's really necessary and it really needs to be in everybody's face every yeah. day because it's easy to forget and get into that vicious cycle we call it the my, my current boss she's our regional director i actually worked with her on the denver project so we have a you know a long long history which is fantastic she's awesome that's a um jenna williams for the for cfm right now and you know we in some of our internal uh, presentations will say, okay, how, how do we get off this crazy train where people were just getting into this letter writing campaign? And, you know, it all comes back to, it ties to that, you know, how do we get to yes? How do we focus on keeping that end, end in line and, and starving the negatives an absolute component of doing so? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, but, so, it sounds like it's been an awesome and interesting career. So you're not actively engaged as a resident engineer. Now, now all resident engineers essentially would report up through you. Is that... Fair yes, that's correct. Yeah, for the for our West region, my direct reports are the senior resident engineers, which, like I said, depending on the size or complexity of the project, may or may not have staff. They may be executing the project solo. We might have a contracted construction manager service to supplement our boots on the ground team. 
or they may have some direct reports themselves. So yeah, that's my chain of command within the West. Awesome. Yep. Uh, shifting gears just a little bit based on all of that experience, I'm sure, you know, and, and the level of leadership that you're at, one of the things we like to do is just highlight lessons learned through, through the leadership journey that have served you well in your career, setting that culture through those, those big three. I mean, you've, you've talked about the VA and, and I think in general, healthcare missions are real nonstop missions that, that are compelling to keep at the forefront of what we're doing. And I do, I agree that the leader's job is to always be bringing, you know, construction may feel disconnected from healthcare outcomes, but you know, that, that facility is where healthcare outcomes happen. So that mission is, is pretty compelling. What else has served you or, or lessons learned that, you know, you think are worth highlighting on the uh, podcast? You know, after, after having the, the, the resident engineer, senior resident engineer experience, I'd stepped more into the program management as opposed to project management. So I mm-hmm. was supporting then later leading as the director, of one of our program management offices. And this was with the Corps of Engineers. So you're seeing, a, again, that was about a $10, $11 billion portfolio across the country down into San Juan. That disengagement from the day-to-day of individual project details, I, I think was an it was important to me and and truly the aspect of program management it helps to say okay it, it removes the blinders a little bit you're, you're not getting fixated on specific project we'll say challenges with a, a lowercase c and i think that that helped to reinforce the okay there, there's instances where it's it's going to be 100 percent fine to compromise we need to be able to still maintain that higher you know, the, those key indicators, the, it's, it's focusing less on getting wrapped around the axle, like I said, of, of some of the minutiae, the things that are still required to get the project done and helping to clarify questions and comments with, with individual contractors. But it, it helped me to keep that focus on those critical aspects of the construction project. Those, and really it's a, it's a matter of prioritization of, okay, what, what elements, what specific activities that are currently ongoing need focus right now? And how is that, you know, from a time investment standpoint, and if I'm running a program of, you know, 20, you know, 24 projects, uh, what are the key elements that are necessary right now to push these projects forward? Because it's easy to get hung up on something that might be taking a lot of, a lot of time or a lot of, you know, stakeholder investment to resolve but there there could be some larger programmatic items that are okay well here's a the the root cause of this thing is a you know could be tied to a process or could be tied to you know protocol of how we're doing it let's let's figure out a way to uh, fast track and create more efficiencies in some of our own internal administrative processes sometimes it's as simple as okay we switch these you know this process around a little bit and that allows us to get a formalized decision that enables us to move forward a month sooner. And that month translates into real dollars or translates into sooner or quicker completion of the project, which in turn goes back to the mission of healthcare for the vets. So really just being able to, I think, to, to, to rack and stack, prioritize the issues. I think that's a, that's, that's something that was much more impressed on me during the program, program management focus, as opposed to individual project management, where you're seeing every little detail 
that, that needs to be addressed. And and how, you know, if, if you've got any tips for somebody that's going through this evolution right now, because I, I think we all go through it, it's because you're so used to solving the project level problems, it feels like you got to solve the project level problems. But then if you're solving them, you're not empowering the new leader or the new resident engineer to figure out how to solve them. And sure, you might be able to get the answer faster, but is that really critical? Uh, that is, I think, the probably biggest challenge going into the supervisor or leadership role. It's, it's 100% a mindset shift. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier about needing to keep that star of the negative in front of your face every day, it's the same thing here. It takes, and I, I still struggle with it, but it, it definitely takes discipline to and engage with a team in a manner that exactly like you said, you're, you're, you're creating situations in that the people who are now on the project level, you know, my, my direct reports are taking that ownership because I feel when you step in asking questions and getting, you know, sit reps and status reports and everything is one thing, but when you start diving deeper into understanding of the project issues, there is that line that if you cross as a, you know, at the manager level to, to start addressing the issue, you're absolutely robbing your team of the opportunity to take that ownership for themselves. And I think if, you know, that, that setting a pattern of that, it, it's, it's, it has long-term effects, I think, both in the, the examples you set for your staff and the willingness there, the, the risks they're really willing to take on, on their own. And, yeah. You know, I think, what, it's it's partly culture and how you work within your team, the norms you set, but it also just has as much to do with when going through the hiring process. It's it's absolutely critical. It's having a very diligent approach to your review and your selection criteria for who you're going to hire to make sure you're getting, you know, the absolute A plus, you know, folks into that role. It's a lot easier to. It's a lot easier to keep the momentum going with a good team rather than having to stop to address, you know, uh, an issue. And that could be, that could be a training. Uh, it could be making sure there's, you know, an understanding of process going through the, you know, the learning curve. Um, but uh, I, I think getting the right people when you're going through the hiring process, it, it helps to ensure that you're not going to, as a, as a manager or a leader have to step in and, maybe even overstep to help correct a problem. Yeah. And that's, and it's, it's a tricky balance to, to maintain because, you know, especially when you're used to it, you just want to go in, we're, you know, we're well, sleeves up and, and get into it. And I, I think I saw this in the core of engineers. I'm sure deal, you deal with it in the VA. Uh, and we certainly see it in private sector is you want to give your, I'll call it the, you know, when you're the program manager, you want to give your project manager, when you're the leader, you want to give your next level leaders, empower them, give them, give them the opportunity to, to deal with the issues. Then you have on the flip side of that, the customer or the stakeholder that's, that's getting noisy and they're trying to bring you into the issue because they want to elevate. And, and you know, it's, it's like, you want to be responsive to your customer. You want to serve your customer, but at the same time, you're going to enable that customer to think every time something's a little hairy, they got to come to you to fix it. And I, 
I'm I'm living proof of this. Like it just you don't get there, and 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 you just create more problems for yourself because you're you're you might have a project manager that ha- now has the technical responsibility, but as a program manager, now you've taken all the customer responsibility, and you know that's not really empowering your leaders. Uh, yeah, and you mentioned that too. I mean, it's 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 critical to establish those respectful norms and being able to communicate them in a way that it makes sense and it's understood. The, the, you know, it's it's just as important to set the norm as it is to explain the why. Yeah, and I think when you can be transparent with the stakeholder, whether that's a you know, a contractor or like a design construction agent in our scenario with the Corps of Engineers or, you know, in um, some of the medical centers that are going to be taking over these spaces. It's, I think transparency, it's, it's not the old days where it's, everything's a contractual battle line. It is, like I was mentioning that, that first supervisor I had, John O'Carroll, he, he was just really good at holding the line on the really, like I said, maintaining cost schedule and quality but there's you need to be open um there's obviously a thing is oversharing so there's a fine line to keep but um i've found that as long as people understand and as long as you can communicate effectively both you know what you're doing and why you're doing it that opens up a much more productive conversation than just saying well i'm the government and i say no so right. you're going to have to find another. Yeah. How, how do you create a spirit of partnership? It's yeah. And we, you know, we've gotten a lot, we VA that is, uh, we've, we've definitely taken the route more facilitated partnering services. And I think those, those help to set off or help to kick off a project off the right foot or on the right foot. But it's, it's, again, it goes back to, I think boundaries and norms and open transparent communication. You, yeah. you can't, establish a foundation without or you, you can't build upon a foundation to improve process or even culture without a, a baseline foundation of trust so you got to know that you're there for the same purpose and you're not you know you're, you're not looking to personally benefit from your experience in the project more than you know that all oh, this is going to be great for my career so i'm going to make sure you know i'm looking great in this scenario it's you know, the best thing for me in my role here whether it's program or project level is to ensure we are keeping that end in mind and the more you can do that, the more, the more important it's going to be to maintain that transparency and communication and just help drive the trust and build those norms of open dialogue and, and proactive collaboration. So I want to, I want to ask one more question. It's kind of related to that before we move into some of the rapid fire stuff. The, the idea of the the partnering and risk sharing, risk shedding or, or risk shifting and the current market that we're in where labor is pretty tight and becoming more expensive due to inflation. Supply chains feel like they're screwed up across the board. Predictability is hard. Cost estimating is, you know, we've, we've had projects come out you know, two to- two x what the original cost estimate was a couple of years ago, and and in the government that changes programmatic level funding or or congressional level budgets. How how do we fix this in a you know it, whether whether it's a low bid contract or or not? These issues all exist and they're real time issues and they're impossible to be absorbed 
by, you know, through the supply chain, if you will. So these are really owner level issues because at the end of the day, it's the owner's project. However, the contract's written, it's a reality. How are you dealing with that? What are you seeing through your portfolio? One of the, and I think this more so in my experience, I saw some of the, this being a core of engineer protocol that CFM is also leaning into. Um, but during the, you know, the requirements definition of design development prior to getting into that, whether it's design build, design to build, I'm seeing an increase in industry days, wherein we go out and say, hey, this is, this is the details that were, you know, the, the, the basic uh, scope and timeline details that we're looking at for this program project. These are some of our plans for, you know, acquisition strategy, some of the, some of the challenges and risks that we see industry that could be, you know, designers, other designers, it could be joint ventures in a design built joint venture environment. It could be uh, general contractors. What do you, what do you see? How can you help to inform, you know, our, our, risk register, our plans for how we intend to execute this project. And I've actually seen us make, the VA make some pretty significant changes, both in like a sequence of phasing or an acquisition strategy approach that, you know, behind that contractual and on the government side behind the curtain, it's, you know, this, this seems like a pretty solid, reasonable way to go forward. And we think we're going to have, uh, ultimately have some good success in going this approach. And then might receive some unexpected feedback um, to say, you know, this is, uh, you know, you, you need to consider perhaps earlier contractor involvement during the design stage due to the, just the, the, the massive uh, technical complexities associated with, in this case, it was uh, like a structural seismic renovation, uh, renovation of a pretty large, um, two pretty large buildings. So and back to that transparent and that open communication, I think that's been one element that has helped to inform our just, I would say, risk awareness and risk yeah. inclusion. Make sure we have adequate stakeholder input when we're developing those risk things, which really do drive those higher level decisions on, you know, uh, on either phase or multi-phase project uh, delivery decisions. And you really did nail it uh, with the government, the federal government experience with you're starting your budget two years out, you know, before you can get it in and submitted. That's, you know, for a, for a billion dollar project, you're something changes. We're looking at a one to two year potential delay just from a, you know, strictly budget availability standpoint. Right. Yeah. Having significant departures there, that's, that's some significant, yeah, significant amounts of money that are just realized through uh, escalation due to no scope change yeah. at all. So, and that either means, all right, it's going to be a, it's, it's going to be a larger, um, estimate for construction or it's going to be we have to potentially remove some of the scope to make sure we can fit and win within the ceiling and those are again are risk-informed business decisions that need to uh, occur and trying to make sure the timeline for that decision making is pretty big um, on the estimating side um, you know i mentioned that the that pmo level working closely with the core of engineers and and cfm all the stakeholders one of the big focuses we had were the reconciliation for estimates. We have two groups, you know, one one group within each agency that are absolute subject matter experts on the topic of estimating. But I was finding in our, you know, in our dialogue between the two groups, the estimating groups, 
not even just the processes by which we go through that re- reconciliation effort. There were, you know, just a, a set of assumptions on both sides that may not have been clearly voiced, may not have been well understood, and it was creating some, uh, not conflict, but just uh, really challenges in getting to that final line that we can just take and move forward as the jointly accepted estimate. So they were VA's estimators and the Corps' estimators were very good in and being open to, all right, let's, we're going to have a monthly meetings and we're just going to talk about all these things that we're, we're identifying could be unknowns to the other side, you know, from a agency standpoint, we don't right. know why this is seen as an issue. So being able to talk through that, I think that opened up and that really started the pre COVID days, but having that dialogue and that, that, that bridge built directly between the two, you know, in this example, I think it helped pave the way for a little more agility and saying, all right, COVID's it's changing the game and as far as how we, we estimate. So we need to um, ultimately it came up to having a you know a member like a memorandum of agreement or some understanding of how we're gonna both mutually assign the same types of escalation factors and everything. But that was again one of those smaller things that just gets done on every project, but having the ability to kind of step back from the individual projects and say, okay, what are what are some of the thematic issues yeah. here? And and being able to um, to try to navigate to a, uh, a jointly accepted um, process or protocol. Um, that's that, that was necessary um, when it came to those challenging COVID era times. But yeah, I mean, some, some of our projects, we had to push back a little bit or ask for some additional funds that did change some of the milestones. Other ones, you know, we may have I think in some cases there were projects that went out on the street. This may have been before those pre-industry day scenarios where we came back and there was a significant bid bust. Okay, so back to the drawing board, what what specific major cost drivers, how do we engage with the industry right. to make sure we're more aligned? So I, I think the alignment within the industry and just solid solid projections. And there's always going to be risks that you can try your best to define and assume the impact of. Yeah. Quantify and qualify or qualify and quantify. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's an art and science, but it and it feels like one that that is gonna evolve or be forced into evolution here on on the fly. Because I think the public sector has seen it, private sector is probably getting ready to see it as capital markets tighten up and and deals, you know, trying to get those deals done from a construction standpoint. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. All right. I I could go down a a couple of different rabbit holes, but in the spirit of a uh, 45-ish minute podcast couple i i'm i'm going to start with must read book because you and this might take us down a little rabbit hole you mentioned a few to me in your email and also that you have an executive coach so i want to talk about the value that you have gotten as a public servant with an executive coach and and what form you work with an executive coach in because i think it's it's definitely something the private sector uses a lot you're the first person I've I've talked with in the public sector that mentioned it. So, talk to us about that. Certainly, and and we're about I'd say two years into 
this being a an opportunity within within the VA, and it's 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 been a part, pretty widely cast net into who it, who can be considered for applying for the executive coaching. But I've I've found that it's usually about 24, 25 hours over the duration of their contract, which is usually about a fiscal year, and just turns it you know the, the way we've broken up is you know about an hour session every other week. Um, I've had over the course of two contracts, the same and the, the same executive coach, which I think helped. Yeah. Continuity. Uh, of... Yeah. And they, they were very, that, that, that company was very clear and okay, this, they did a good job defining, this is what coaching is. This is what we do. This is what we do not. We're not going to solve your problems. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. So I, it, it really, <laughs> It was interesting. And sometimes it was, okay, I got these very detailed bulleted list of six things I want to talk about. It could be some, you know, team dynamic challenges that I want to help to resolve. It could be, you know, uh, this is something that's, that's, that's on my mind about the program could use some suggestions on how to effectively raise this up the, the chain of command, Uh, you know, some, some potential landmines to, to avoid, you know, trying to rush in like a bull in a China shop type scenario. which as construction folks and, you know, engineers, it's not always tact isn't always our, our, our <laughs> strong suit. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, yeah, I well, found the place that, to I exhale. Found, we call that. <laughs> yeah. But I found the, it, having a sounding board, that sanity check with someone who's, who's you know, credentialed and, and just a, a well-rounded uh, through experience of coaching others. Uh, I think it's, it's it's critical. It's helped me out of uh, a lot of very uh, challenging scenarios. I, I couldn't advocate enough for taking advantages of executive coaching if you know your company or agency has that. But and she's actually that tying into your question about the book. She she had provided me with a a lot of resources there that I'm gonna have to still go and pick up, but. Some of the ones I've only just started reading uh, from strength to strength. That's a, a, a book talking, you know, kind of that we touched on earlier, kind of transitioning partly through your, your just life in general and partly through as you're going up through different organizational positions and, and, you know, having different areas of responsibility. So having that, that shift, but my, my airplane book, my, my usual go-to airplane book right now is crucial conversations. That's kind of been, I've, I've went back and picked that up time and time again. And for, for me, that one's been just important and keeping, keeping in the back of your mind. Okay. If, if there's some big blowout on a contract, if it's you know between individuals or between agencies and companies, if it gets to the point where there's just a big blow up in communication that to me, that pretty much just means you've, you've missed the opportunity to step in and engage sooner. There's a yeah. lot of small spells that you could have picked up on, and I think it's it, I think it's just critically important to just be mindful of the the pulse, how the team dynamic is going, how you know just what looking at things as, as far as how they fit into the themes, and being able to step in and say, okay, this is starting to go down this track. We need to step in and nip this in the bud early. And again, that could be a contractual issue. It could be a personality issue. It could be anything that, that really has the opportunity or the potential to disrupt that ability to maintain program execution, project execution. So um, 
being able to engage at the right time in a, in a manner that does not escalate a situation, I think is, as the book suggests, it's crucial. Well, yeah, I, I want to hit on that and audience, forgive us. Maybe we're, we might go a little over time today. I think this is a critical issue. I've seen it. I've seen it in projects. I've seen it in our company. And, and this is me reflecting is in the hybrid work environment, when you're having meetings and you feel that pulse shifting and you know that it's time to have a, a sidebar conversation with somebody. But it's not as easy to have the sidebar conversation because we're not all getting up from a table and you can linger to have that conversation with somebody mm -hmm. and not make it an issue. Because, hey, let's get this on the calendar tomorrow and I've missed the emotional connection leader to leader to leader or leader to, to team member to really like in that moment, hey, this is what I'm sensing there. And I think that emotional connection is where all of the magic in development happens because it's the chance to have the crucial conversation almost in a loving way instead of a reactive way before it causes a reaction or a frustration. And when you can do it in person and you can do it in that moment, you can, you can deescalate it is, is kind of how I see it. And in the hybrid work environment where we're all moving from zoom call to teams call to zoom call, it's like, shit, I'm, I missed that opportunity. And two weeks later, I'm like, I should have had that conversation. I've, now I've now I'm frustrated. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I think that that mentorship, you know, that, that you, you referenced it early on, how critical that, that key leader that you were kind of shadowing and under that was teaching you, I think that mentorship is getting missed in this hybrid work world. And, and, and I think we got to fix it or, or evolve it quickly. Um, what are your thoughts, reactions? Yeah. You know, I've recently brought on a couple new uh, senior resident engineers um, in that dispersed environment. I, I have had the good fortune of being able to meet them in person, which mm -hmm. there's instances during COVID where it's taken a year to see somebody in person. But, you know, it, it, I think a lot of it's the little things. It is the recurring pulse checks, having those conversations, not just after the the instance in which you're like, okay, I need to address this right now, but having that, building the bridge before you need it, you know, mm -hmm. small things, having the camera up. I mean, all those typical things to make sure there is as much of that face-to-face person-to-person um, ex experience. And, you know, it it's it, it's possible that we can, you know, in the, in the sense of newer team members where we want to help with the learning curve, we will temporary duty assigned to another project where there'll be a support where there can be some shadowing of course that ties into your budget similarly depending on the severity of an issue it's okay well yeah a phone call is not going to really fix this when i need to get on a plane and i need to be that first person in person engagement yeah. interaction is absolutely required I, I feel in the west there it is a pretty a pretty tight-knit group and we've we've been able to 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 manage that over the last, I'd say, four to five years, almost exclusively through COVID, in having those not just one-on-one -on -one larger group conversations where, you know, all hands type meetings where everybody does have their um, their, their videos up. And it's, it's not just project reports, but there's, you know, I, I think when you can work with folks and, and show interest in them beyond just their work capacity yeah. and genuine interest, you know, when you can 
when 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 your team knows that or feels that okay, it's not just yeah, going to be watching to make sure I'm checking all these boxes of the job duties, but hey, you know, if something's happening or if there's a re- persistent issue or recurring issue, it's you know, they're they're you are you doing all right? Is there anything beyond what I'm just able to blatantly see? Is there something more underlying that that you know can can help with what's really the root cause here? I think having those just open conversations and in person when possible, but absolutely regularly occurring and video based chats with the team, I think are you can't have success in this environment without some level of being able to pick up on some of the social tells and body language and everything. Yeah, I agree with you. All right. Favorite quotes. We're getting back on track here, audience. Favorite quotes. <laughs> the top one, it sticks in my mind. I've heard it in a training team lead training session through office personnel management is you can demand compliance, but you have to inspire excellence. I love that quote. And, I've never yeah, heard it before. Stuck with me for over a decade. And it's, it's absolute truth. It's people are going to, people are going to take that next step when you know, you're there, you're, you're there to support them and you're there doing the same level of commitment as you know, you're trying to get out of, out of the team. So. All right. How about outside of the office? What are you, what are you doing? It's been, it's been, it's been an eventful year. I just moved into a you know new home. So a lot of my time has kind of been focused on getting getting the old house cleaned up and all fixed, uh, getting the new house ready or essentially home, but looking for, and I've still been maintaining a, I like to do a lot of volunteering, getting out and some of the major where my national yeah. veteran summer, summer sports clinic. Yeah. What that's is one that? Thing I've been doing the last couple of years. It's, it's put on by, by the VA. There's a winter clinic that's up in usually in the Aspen area. And there's a summer clinic summer clinic I help with, they, they rotate, they bring in a bunch of veterans around the country. There's a rotation of five different activities. I work with the sailing group and they'll do adaptive sports. So you'll see veterans with uh, mobility or, you know, other health related issues and say, Hey, you know, it's really a way to promote getting out and staying active, being part of a group that, Hey, you know, this might be something you, you hadn't thought of or thought there might be, especially in the, you know, missing a limb. It's hard to, yeah. Is is that a volunteer organization or is that run by the VA? Run by the VA, a lot of volunteer work. Uh, a lot of folks go into volunteer in, in support of that. Um, all right, everybody, you heard it. Awesome. I get I yeah. get asked all the time what kind of veteran <laughs> initiatives are out there that I can get involved in. You just heard one. We'll make sure we uh, get one. some information from Todd and put it in the link in the uh, show yeah. notes. But uh, yeah, we're uh, volunteering with Special Olympics and volunteering with, there's a local animal sanctuary that I've been working with in the volunteer capacity for the last probably seven years. It's a Long Hopes donkey shelter. So they exclusively focus on donkeys and they're rehabilitating the animals and making sure they could be, you know, could be feral animals that were picked up by BLM and trying to get them ready so they can be adopted as, as, uh, yeah. That's pretty cool. It's, it's pretty fun. It's a good. Remember to starve the negative with Eeyore over there. Absolutely. It's a good mental break, though, to to be able to maintain that work-life balance. I found it critical. That is. And and you and I may have to have a separate conversation and a separate podcast on that because there's a a lot we could dive into on the work-life balance conversation. But I I do want to respect your time and, and our audience. Last question, dead or alive, if you could hang out with three people for a dinner, who would they be? 
I could spend a lot of time thinking on that one, but I will think about tonight's dinner because I'm going to be pretty content with that one. My parents are in town visiting, so I get to have dinner with my parents who still live in Pennsylvania. That's I awesome. I see them as much as I, as I want to and uh, my girlfriend. So, That's great. Yeah, pretty pretty happy with where I am right now. Sounds good. Close us out. Legacy, how do you want to be remembered and, and what message do you have for the industry as we try to not not just demand compliance, but inspire excellence? I think it's important to always have a, a mindset on how can we improve our current environment? And that can be just uh, making processes a little bit better, you know, increasing or improving only by little steps at a time, realizing we don't have to solve the entire problem right now, but as long as we continue to chip away at something, I think that's uh, absolutely necessary to take the small steps where we can. And to your, to your last comment there, I'd love to <laughs> love to come back and chat more, but one of the big things I think closing is uh, attend your personal life just as vigorously as you do your, your personal hmm. life. Maintain that balance so you can contribute to both both sides of yourself equally diligently. It's it's necessary to have that balance. Amen. Todd, thank you so much for taking the time with us, and thanks for everything you're doing at the VA for our veterans and the future of healthcare for our for our veterans. Appreciate you, BJ. Thanks for this and the opportunity. Thank you, sir. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.